podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's book club, all about one of Shakespeare's least frequently performed plays, Henry VIII. First of all, we probably need to talk about its title. We know it as the famous history of the life of King Henry VIII, thanks to the first folio, but for much of its early life it was known by another name, All is True. I must confess that in last week's episode I overlooked a point about the title of A Winter's Tale, but it's probably just as well so that I can tie it in here. A Winter's Tale was shorthand for a fantasy, an obviously fabricated concoction or a fairy story. Certainly that tale was full of wonder and miracles, and its title would have announced to its audience that it is required you do awake your faith. Now we have a play that is called all is true, purporting to be about King Henry VIII and certain episodes in his life. Is the title telling us to believe everything we hear? We'll come back to that. By the time of this play, which we can reliably accept was written in 1613, Shakespeare hadn't written a history play in well over a decade. He had collaborated on a play about Sir Thomas More, but his last proper history play had been Henry V at the turn of the 17th century. It was the genre that had brought him considerable success. His eight plays dealing with the vagaries of English history were the ones that put him on the map. As mentioned in several of these episodes, these plays were often a lens through which he could look at and talk about contemporary issues, like the campaigns in Ireland or the worries surrounding the succession. Richard III had been dead for over a century before Shakespeare ever wrote a play, so there was a reasonably comfortable gap of time between the past and the present. In 1613, Elizabeth I was ten years dead. So why did Shakespeare now decide to write a play about her famous father and his struggle to marry her famous mother? Short answer, we don't know. There is an interesting possibility, perhaps even with a royal commission, this was a royal wedding that took place the same year, 1613. On Valentine's Day, King James's daughter, Princess Elizabeth, married the Elector Palatine of the Holy Roman Empire, Frederick V, who was also known as the Winter King. I would love to be able to tell you that the Winter's Tale was also written at this time in acknowledgement of his connection to Bohemia, but sadly this isn't the case. The marriage of Elizabeth and Frederick was a concrete, Protestant, Northern European alliance, and it was a huge celebration. It's very possible that Shakespeare's showy, pageanty play was created for just such an occasion, ending, as it does, with a love letter to a Princess Elizabeth and a celebration of all that the future holds for her. This is all very well, but I still have to say that this is quite an odd play. Shakespeare has always been very diplomatic and cautious in what he puts on stage. From Richard II right through to Richard III, he was always careful to manage the way that he presented historical facts, particularly when they concerned the transfer of power or the dynastic legitimacy of the Tudors. It's as if his caution never really went away, and here he gives us a very sanitised version of history. Certainly any and all juicy bits of the soap opera story we've come to expect between Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII have been squeezed out. Anne has been a constant fascination for storytellers who variously decide to redeem or vilify her, but Shakespeare seems content to give her very little to say, as if all the events of this court happen around her without her having to get involved. The play progresses through various events, 
There are four trials, the royal wedding, three deaths, and the birth of that very particular baby. There isn't a lot of drama along the way. If you really want intrigue and machinations and backstage court gossip, you'll have a lot more fun with Hilary Mantel's trilogy about Thomas Cromwell and Anne Boleyn and Wolf Hall. In Shakespeare's play, we hear a lot from passing characters. They describe some of the grander events as they happen off stage, and then go about their business while the next on-stage event is set up. While Henry VIII is the biggest role, which is not always the case in these plays that the title character is the lead, this is not a Henry we really recognise. He's certainly not the almost Falstaff-like figure of the merry old king, the lusty skirt-chaser and prodigious eater. Some productions try to make him into more of a thinker, an introspective monarch haunted by the fact that he hasn't produced a male heir. This is feasible, but quite a challenge for an actor, since he'll be mining the text for material that isn't really there. It's ironic that Shakespeare has written a play about this towering figure of English history, one of the most famous of all kings, and then doesn't quite give us the character we might expect. Meanwhile, Cardinal Wolsey has almost as many lines as Henry himself, and is a far more interesting character. Even as we are seeing him become more and more influential, not least thanks to the removal and execution of Buckingham at the start of the play, we have a sense that all is cyclical, and that whoever rises on this wheel of fortune will also be heading for a fall. Many will fall in this story. Sure enough, Wolsey winds up hoisted on his own petard, as a very silly error leads to his papers being found, revealing that he's been making a lot of money from his efforts for king and country. One fateful event has also occurred. Henry has encountered a young woman called Anne Boleyn at a party at Wolsey's house, and we all know how that has to go. The trouble is that Henry has been married to Catherine of Aragon now for over 20 years, and despite their conjugal efforts, they have not been blessed with a male heir. Shakespeare tiptoes quite respectfully around the issue of the divorce and the break with Rome, and the political troubles that arose from Henry's rejection of Catherine. They did have a healthy daughter, Mary, who grew up to be queen in her own right. But none of their other children survived, and so... Henry had to find a way to get another potential mother for his son. It's interesting that Shakespeare can't dwell on the horror of having only daughters. By the time he wrote the play, his own son had passed away, leaving him with two daughters. I don't know if he felt an affinity with Henry, but he certainly couldn't say too much about the weakness of women instead of sons, given that Henry's two daughters were both queens of England and were among the most influential in the country's history. However Shakespeare feels, the play must continue, and so we see Wolsey removed, Thomas Cranmer made Archbishop of Canterbury, and Anne becomes Queen. While Anne may be a very physical presence in the play, particularly at the party where Henry encounters her, and then at the pageant of the wedding and her becoming Queen, it is Catherine who has the bigger part. She's got nearly six times as many lines. Catherine of Aragon was herself a major figure in world history. She was the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, the monarchs who had financed the voyages of Christopher Columbus. She was Henry's wife for a very long time. It's worth noting that she was married to him for about twice as long as all the other five wives put together. 
Sometimes, because of her position as the first discarded queen, her impact can be overlooked. Shakespeare redresses the balance, portraying her as an intelligent, rational woman with a broken heart. Her speeches are very effective, even though we know that things obviously will not go her way. It's probably the most compelling role in the play. Just as Catherine must be removed, and conveniently die, to make way for Queen Anne Boleyn, we always have in the back of our minds that Anne will not last very long herself. Shakespeare's audience watching this play would surely have remembered the historical outcome of the various moves on this political chessboard. Buckingham, Wolsey and Catherine are all dead by the end, but we know too that Thomas Cromwell and Anne Boleyn will lose their heads soon enough, and that Queen Mary will eventually have Thomas Cranmer burned at the stake. Shakespeare's depiction of Anne is quite cautious, as I mentioned. The way that he depicts her and chops and changes the sequence of historical events for the sake of the play's story all seem to question this title, All is True. This kind of tension in historical representation certainly hasn't gone away. Even in the last few weeks, there has been much heated discussion of the Netflix series The Crown and debate over whether or not it should be necessary to put a disclaimer on the show to announce that it is not a documentary or an absolute presentation of history as it happened. Shakespeare, as ever, got there first. The play ends with the celebrations surrounding the birth of Princess Elizabeth. We get the extraordinary image of Archbishop Cranmer praising this baby. In some productions that I've seen, he's even holding the child as he does so. As such, we have the most senior cleric of the burgeoning English or Anglican Church, a Protestant Archbishop, quite literally holding the baby whose parents' wedding was the main reason for the Reformation and the split from Rome. It's almost like a prophecy that he gives, promising that she'll reign marvellously and be a virgin wedded to her country, and so on. Of course, Edward VI, Jane Grey and Mary all took the throne before Elizabeth did, but their storylines didn't quite match up to this myth-making pageantry celebrating another Protestant princess, Elizabeth, and her wedding. Shakespeare left out an awful lot. He likely mentions the taxation levied on the country by Henry, but he makes it look as if Henry was more interested in giving money back to the people, which is patently not true. He doesn't even hint at the dissolution of the monasteries, the outrageous scheme by which he choked England's traditional religious life and got extremely rich in the process. He certainly doesn't go near the more salacious aspects of the courtship between Henry and Anne, since we are aiming towards an idealised version of Elizabeth's birth as saviour of the nation, and it is in the best interests of any pageant for the saviour's mother to be a virgin. This notion of it being a pageant brings me to how I think the play might have worked. The characters are all famous figures, recognisable names from history, or else anonymous kinds of people, ladies-in-waiting, spear-carriers, onlookers, and so on. Nobody has anything like the psychological depth or interior life of Shakespeare's more interesting characters, but perhaps they aren't meant to. In some respects, this feels like it could be a return to the less sophisticated kind of theatre that was in play before Shakespeare existed. In staging the England of a century before, Shakespeare dramatises it using the theatrical means and theatrical style that were available back then. 
stock characters delivering fairly rote depictions of a story. It's almost like a nod to the medieval mystery and morality plays. We have the downfall of three major characters and perhaps their redemption, since the play gives very noble and lofty speeches to all of them in which they seem to accept their fates. Buckingham, Wolsey and Catherine all get to talk to the audience about their ends and they nobly acknowledge what's going to happen to them. Likewise, just as the mystery plays all dealt with Bible stories leading up either to Easter or to Christmas, so this play leads up to the birth of a promised special child. This, of course, is not very subtle, but it might be a means of making the play make sense on stage. On the stage, this is a very demanding play to put on. It has more stage directions than any other play, telling us who should enter, what kind of cries are announcing these entries, and so on. They're particularly detailed. As with many of the history plays, there's a forbidding number of characters in the play too. When Herbert Beerbohm Tree put this on, he crammed his pageant with 142 performers. It's a play that invites this kind of excess and pageantry, and it seems always to have done so. The play is quite notorious for it. During one of King Henry's entrances in a performance in 1613, a shot from a cannon set the roof of the globe on fire, and the show quite literally brought the house down. Personally, I think this is a play that could be staged with amazing results as a promenade piece. With the support of somewhere like Hampton Court Palace, if you could get away with it, you could stage a really exciting pageant, taking the audience on a journey throughout the various scenes and events of the play. It is quite a long text at the best of times, so adding the time to move an audience around might not help, but some judicious cutting might not hurt either. Performing the play in an evocative space, giving architectural meaning to the various dances, trial scenes, and even the more intimate private scenes, could be a really brilliant experience. So, any producers out there, if you're up for such a big challenge, I'm available. For all that, it's not a play that gets performed very often. There was a production at the Globe Theatre in London in 2010, and they bolstered it by programming it opposite the premiere of a new play about Anne Boleyn by Howard Brenton. That play looks at Anne's religious influence and at the eventual development of the King James Bible. The same actress played Anne in both productions, creating a very clear, recognisable link between the two of them. I've only ever seen the play once, which was at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I actually had a ticket to see it in Japan earlier this year. I was on the train on my way to the show in Tokyo when the Japanese government edict came into effect, banning all public performances in the hope of countering the spread of COVID-19. It's startling to think that so much has happened since that afternoon in late February when the theatres were closed because of the plague. Hopefully it won't be too much longer before we can get back into the theatres and see big casts performing these plays again. Obviously, there's no shortage of material about King Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn in any medium you should choose, although this play in particular hasn't generated nearly as much material. For more on how the Reformation might have influenced Shakespeare, particularly his poetry, I recommend Claire Asquith's recent book, Shakespeare and the Resistance. She's a firm proponent of the theory that Shakespeare was a secret Catholic, but her discussion of the impact of Henry's choices on the lives of ordinary English people is really interesting. 
If you want to read more about Anne Boleyn, a recent book with the dramatic title 500 Years of Lies attempts to paint a fairer picture of this most maligned of women. I haven't yet made it all the way through Giles Tremlett's biography of Catherine of Aragon, nor have I finished Hilary Mantel's The Mirror and the Light, they're both very big volumes, but even these four titles give you a sense that publishers are still churning out stories about this dramatic, tumultuous time in England's history. Shakespeare's own contribution to this story can feel a little tepid by comparison, and a little wordy, but then I should conclude by mentioning that a lot of scholars agree that he didn't write all of it. Much of it, it seems, belonged instead to John Fletcher. But it was certainly Shakespeare enough to merit being included in the first folio, without question or caveat or any mention of Mr Fletcher. Whatever might have been behind the writing of this play, whether commission, pageantry, historical revision, royal flattery or even ironic commentary, we just cannot know. All is true indeed. Next week we come to the end of the line, with a play that many consider Shakespeare's farewell to the theatre. It's full of magic and of theatrical flourishes, and some of Shakespeare's most quoted lines. It is, of course, The Tempest, and if you haven't read it before, you're in for a real treat. Have a look, enjoy the week, and I'll speak to you next time.